segregated institution in America is the church of Lebanon Cross. The most segregated institution in America. The most racist institutions are the churches. You can hear. You can listen to the broadcast over and over. All you can listen to the broadcast. You can hear hate. You just listen with a close ear, with a scrutinizing mind. You can hear hate all the time, teaching people to hate one. I've got to find out who's willing to think. It's only right that I get somebody to be like I am. I want you to be like me. I don't want you to worship me. I want you to be like I am. I want you to become what I am. I want you to enjoy the fearlessness that I have, the courage that I have, the compassion that I have, the love that I have, the all-encompassing mercy that I am. I want you to be what I am and something greater. I want you to give you more than I have. I want you to be greater than I am. And if you don't want to go this route, then go to hell where you want to, but don't bother me.
You just heard Hypnotized from Heathen's Victim of Deception album from 1991. This is the Thrash Extravaganza Patreon episode bonus number three. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. I guess we, I don't, I, yeah, I guess we do need to do intros, but then I think about like, oh, these are for the patrons. Do they they kind of already know who we are, but still, it's kind of like a, a habit that we get into. Yeah, if um, we don't, we're going to forget who we are. That's true. Yeah. You don't want that. That's like no. an existential crisis, you know, so. I guess if we offer these episodes like, you know, in the future as like downloadable episodes as like normal shows, like a year from now, like I guess mm-hmm. it's quite smart that we, we introduce it. So, so, so future Americans, uh, if you're hearing this like a year from now, there you go. We are Mark and Jason. <laughs> Just for future consistency. We've done this for every single episode. You got it. You got it. Um, and this is the the poll winner um, by, by a pretty big kind of landslide from our patrons. And so, I guess this is technically the first episode we've done that's like kind of directly impacted by the patrons, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a lot of new ones actually welcoming uh, for their first like brand new episode. Um, obviously, a lot of our new patrons like had access to the, the older stuff, but um, pretty, pretty awesome. We've really um, gained some traction. So welcome all new patrons uh, who have joined us at the, the very tail end of the thrash journey here for uh, this little this bonus episode. I think yeah, people have liked the the weekly consistency. Yeah, I definitely I think, think that's that in this day and age, people need yep. something to look forward to. Yeah, and you know, I had a cool conversation, and um, I think it was in text. I'm pretty sure with Joe Schaefer, um, you know, who has joined us for tribulation and, and you know um, helped us out with the, uh, the the Snow White episode and, and things like that. He sent that. messages along to us too. Oh, did he? Okay. For different, you know, for audio messages for yeah, know, different episodes. Yeah, for episode 200 and, and things like that as well. Um, and I'm kind of scrolling back, but we, we were just kind of like chatting a little bit. Um, see if I can find it. But we um, we just kind of got on like a, a thing where, um, what is it? You know, I just kind of asked him, I said, hey, you know, shoot me straight. You're kind of like a, you know, like I, I, I trust your opinion. And he's kind of up to date on like a lot of our stuff. And I just said, you know, I, I feel like we've kind of had like a nice kind of flow, a good quality in some of our recent run, blah, blah, blah. And he just said, no, dude, you guys have really found a groove. And he just said, 
And I just kind of asked him, I said, what do you think the difference is? He goes, I think the difference is research. He goes, it's the difference between fandom and professionalism. And I was like, cool, man. I, I appreciate that. You know? And so, yeah. you know, me as a guy writes for decibel and, and various kind of outlets and stuff. And so, you know, he's out there kind of also trying to, you know, professionally or, 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 you know, take an analytical look at metal and, and, and stuff. And so, um, yeah, he just said, dude, you've really kicked it up. Uh, you guys have really kicked it up top uh, a notch in this thrash series is, is kind of really working. And so I was like, cool, you know, so That's good I mean, it's just one voice, but like, it's a yeah. voice that I trust. And the, again, some of the vibes I've, I've kind of gotten um, have been, been really cool from stuff. And so, yeah. Um, it, I know I've, I've put more, I think just the, having the, uh, the kind of week to week schedule and we've been doing a lot of these over, over zoom. So we're just kind of doing one at a time. Yeah. Having that like day or two days. Yeah. Where I like sit down and just write notes and yep, it's become more of like a, not a, not a job, but it's just become more serious. Yeah. And you kind of work it into your, your weekly schedule a little bit. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I've, I've gotten actually more enjoyment out of doing it that way too. Yeah. Cause this, I was than, not looking like, forward to listening to this at all for some reason. Oh really? <laughs> I was just like, fuck, I don't want to listen to this right now. I want to just do whatever I want to do. I and I sit down and listen to it. I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> oh interesting. yeah interesting. yeah there's some there's some cool stuff going on there um i guess i'll talk about the cool stuff for at least the song people just heard before we kind of you know get get off on tangents or whatever but i mean i think you hear it with like a song like hypnotize kind of what the why people really dig about like in particular this heathen record um and we'll, we're going to talk about their their older stuff and we'll talk a little bit about their their more recent stuff but in particular i think this one hits it's pretty nice. Um, yeah, the the guitar tone is like total Master of Puppets. Uh, Justice for All. Even like the drum production sounds very Injustice. Even the drum patterns. How Lars yeah. has really weird choices. This dude also has very weird choices. Yeah, uh, Darren Minter is uh, the drummer, at least on this record. But um, yeah, and I mean, you get this great, you know, opening intro with uh, a, a great quote from, you know, Jim Jones, uh, famous cult leader, which seems kind of like apropos to be talking about sort of the danger of sort of cultish mentality in uh, this day and age. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you kind of lock in. A, it's it's a very dark, moody, very, you know, like like Injustice, right? Like Injustice has mm-hmm. this like moodiness to it, you know? It's um, like Injustice and Queensryche mixed together. Yeah, no, that's a great, great feel. You know what else I hear a lot too, and I'm kind of curious if it jumped out to you because I wrote Queens, Queens right down and stuff, especially maybe this song in particular, but I hear a lot of late 80s, uh, like overkill, like even like horoscope almost too. Oh, yeah. Kind of that feel. Yeah. You know, whatever that. that feel is with like, um, God, what is the, the album right before horoscope? Um, I can picture the cover. Oh, and it had like longer, moodier kind of, uh, you know, overkill songs that were like slower and doomier at times. It also had some of the speed stuff that you expect from overkill. Um, it might be the one that Decibel put in the Hall of Fame that was like put out in like 88 or 89. Years of Decay? Yeah, it might be Years of Decay that I'm kind of thinking of. Yeah. Okay. So like it's got like a Years of Decay feel, horoscope where like they're stretching themselves out a little bit more, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I definitely get that kind of vibe. Um you know, I, I guess, you know, you got Hanneman and King in terms of like great twin lead thrash guys, Holt and Hunting a little bit. I mean, I don't know if they both were trading leads off all the time. Um, I think they were. That's a feel I kind of get from. Yeah. 
how you know these guys um you know doug piercy and, and lee altis um you know we'll talk more about the, the build-up band yeah but. this almost reminds me more of like uh of hetfield and and hammett really you get that like the the down picking oh in terms of like that part yeah yeah, I, yeah. yeah I agree i guess what it is is these guys trade solos back and forth which is like hatfield didn't really play too many solos it was more of the hammett show true you know what I mean? so i guess i'm just thinking like you know you have the violent twin lead guys like exodus and slayer but like these guys almost like are the the iron maiden twin lead of like thrash or something like that in it's terms like, of like adrian both, smith and dave murray yeah it's like both guys have like really awesome ability neither is only the rhythm player you know and so they're pretty distinct when you hear the solos come in like who's doing yeah. what i'm not sure who's doing what but no, style wise it's definitely shows off yeah and so you know like you said the thrashing patterns you get like the the palm mute and the down picking and stuff is like really just you know it it, it really re like you said reminiscent of masters and injustice and do you want to take they, real early yeah, in the show? yeah why not i Fuck would it. say that the guitar tone on this album is in the top 10 of all thrash albums ever. I kind of thought you, this would like sweeten the pot for you, <laughs> you know, because I get some, and again, it's, I get like tone of like a, a violence or something too, you know, they're yeah. not approaching it the same way violence, but it has that, like that amazing crunch um, mm -hmm. that, that violence got and that masters gets and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can see that, you know, and it's got the epic kind of drama too that you hear in Injustice in terms of some of the things that the songs do. And like even Rust in Peace kind of has some of that as well, mm -hmm. where like they've just got their eyes on the prize of like really pushing their abilities. Um, and, and it's weird because, you know, we mentioned Queensryche and I think so often this record gets like a tag of being like a, like a tech thrash or a prog thrash thing. And it has like, tendencies but it's not pretentious and i think that's why it's like really listenable right yeah, i wouldn't really throw it in that category that seems weird the only thing that really seems uh i think more progressive about it is just the fact that the solos are so kind of out of left field sometimes yeah. some of these songs it sounds like you've got like a kid at his guitar teachers doing this like really good rhythm piece and then the mm -hmm. guitar teacher comes in and throws some ridiculous <laughs> arpeggiated solo over it. <laughs> yeah but it works yeah. Yeah, I maybe it seems you know what it's, the band kind of sometimes seems like it almost seems like they have like two Alex Skolnick type dudes in the band. Yeah, you know instead of an Eric Peterson and a Skolnick, you know Peterson sort of doing what like Hatfield does. It's like two guys that have like neoclassical aspirations. The way like Skolnick was like almost better trained than most of the lead guitar guys in the thrash metal scene. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, he was fourteen. Um, yeah, you know. And I get the feeling like both these guys are, are kind of, you know, sort of part of that and stuff. But uh, I think they yeah, come out of, since they're a little bit, uh, I think, older than, maybe three years older than a lot of the other guys in that um, San Francisco scene, I think that they're pulling maybe some more hard rock 70s elements in than New Orleans. Without a doubt. Yep. And when we go back into the backstory, I actually heard a really cool interview that I think it kind of like, I think it answers a lot of the questions that we maybe are bringing up but i'll kind of save that for when we get into the backstory but just to sort of put the kind of final touch on hypnotize because you know how you we have a tendency to kind of uh <laughs> leave the intro song behind because we go on tangents pretty quick and i don't i don't want to leave hypnotize behind because it's a fucking hell of an opener yeah um, 
like you get like almost two and a half minutes before Dave kind of comes in on vocals. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you get the Jim Jones intro. Sure. You know, that takes a little bit, but like just fucking awesome, like long epic kind of just guitars doing like fucking awesome riffs and shit. And then finally like fucking Dave comes in you're like, shit, this is going to be a banger. You know, he's probably then, like outside of Bush, one of the best like traditional oh, heavy metal singers from that era. Without a doubt. And maybe that's where like people give it like a little bit more of the, you know, it's the long songs. It's the, it's the better than average solos. And it's like his type of singing where maybe I could see where people add like the prog tag to it a little bit, but it still doesn't, it's not watchtower, right? It's not. I think it's the stretch calling him prog. Yeah. You know, I mean, people call Queensryche prog too, but Queensryche, I don't know. Like they're, yeah, they kind of exhibit more of the tendencies to me. It's like the pomposity and stuff. That's sure. Part it's of a it. little bit more. It's a little more pompous. Yep. Yeah, you're right. But I guess it's like again, it's all it. It has the musicianship of some of those bands without the pretense, and that's I think what's really fucking awesome about these guys. You know. Yeah, and I think White's got this weird thing going on. Almost how like Belladonna doesn't really fit in with Anthrax, but it works. But it works. Yep. They have that same kind of like dichotomy. I think. Well, he fits in better. But as far as like I, a singer, almost a little bit out of place. That's kind of how yeah. I vibe I got. Yeah, there's something like kind of uh, metal churches about his vocals too. Yeah, you know, and um, that's kind of one of the things. Like when I first heard Metal Church, I didn't really know what to like do with them, you know. And I've I've kind of slowly digested those first few Metal Churches through the past few years to the point where I'm like not only satisfied with them, but like kind of a big fan. But again, it, like. I think I thought Metal Church was supposed to sound like Megadeth and, and Metallica, and they didn't. And so I was like, eh. <laughs> so I just kind of like yeah. set, set them over there and was like, I don't really want to deal with this because I don't know what to do with it, you know? Yeah. So. There's a lot of those bands now that I think with, you know, 25 years of history, you can make sure. a lot more sense out of them. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, you and I are more attuned to vocals like this now than we were when we were like 16, you know? Yeah, so for sure. That kind of helps a little bit. So Yeah, I need some more rasp or something in them, like, anybody like john bush was pushing it so I was yeah. like, he's a good singer but ah oh, i just i like i want to hear like you know tom Mariah instead i really lucked out in that like sound of white noise was really my first anthrax record that i got familiar with so it wasn't so hard for me you yeah. know to go you know it was almost more hard to go back to belladonna and then be like ah this is weird because honestly and i we talked about this in a, a recent episode that we did a normal one we were talking about anthrax a bit like, I think my first Anthrax was like uh, Killer Bees. And yeah. Scotty's singing on a lot of that. And Scott's got mm-hmm. more of a gruff kind of approach, right? So, like, I kind of thought that's what Anthrax was. And then I heard John Bush. Then I went back and I heard like Belladonna. And I was like, huh, who's this guy? You know, like, it was so it was weird. Like, I completely, you know, and then, and then you probably talk to people like, uh, you know, like King Fowley, who's like, he's like a Neil Turbin guy, you know? And you're like, okay, you know, he started with Neil Turbin. That's his, that's his vocalist. And he had a tough time transitioning to like Joey. And you're just like, Oh, yeah. weird. how weird we are. You know, it's probably like they're maiden fans. They're like, fuck you, Bruce Dickinson, you know, I'm Paul Diano, you know, like, like yeah. if you were like into the band, like right at the beginning, like you might've felt kind of weirdly betrayed. And, and that's like a weird thought to me to think about that. But, but, yeah, but then again, yeah, uh, maiden, I mean, there's like a, Diano had more of an edge. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 
but then I think about like a guy like you, whose first like kind of real big maiden experience was like Blaze, almost. You know what I mean? So it's like well, as far as buying the record new on the shelf, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like me, like what's the first Slayer CD like I bought like brand new, like when it came out was Divine Intervention. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, that's a weird, not that I had the other stuff too, but um, speaking of, and speaking of Joe Schaefer, um, and this may be a good gateway for us to kind of chat about some of the the stuff that we've sort of been up to, I bet, I guess. He, he tweeted something out about like fucking how much he loves, um, he kind of rediscovered like divine intervention. And I mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I messaged him on, on Twitter and I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, you know that Mark and I are, are pretty big fans of that record, you know, it kind of doesn't get talked about much. And he goes, he goes, actually it was listening to your forbidden show that got me to like relook at that episode because of boss stuff. And now I'm like a fucking huge fan. So I, awesome. I was like, yeah, that's cool, man. You know, if we can get people into shit, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. So, or just to re- like, one of my favorite things we do on the show is to go back and look at a record that we dismissed or, you know, had like kind of just not super great um, ideas about originally. Yeah. And coming, coming in fresh, coming in like analytical and then like coming away with like, wow, this is way better than I ever gave it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's been one of my favorite parts of this journey. I'm I'm a little sad to kind of leave it behind, but I'm also excited to, you know, get a little bit of a mental break. Cause I kind of, think, I think I need one just with like some of the stresses of school that I was talking to Mark about kind of prior and you've got a lot of, you know, things in the as well, Yeah. but I also want to do, and I think we've talked about this on the patron show and so it's okay to kind of, you know, talk, but you know, we are kind of setting up to work with uh, Ian Glasper um, of Stampin' Ground and Terrorizer fame. And um, he's written a bunch of books on kind of British punk and British hardcore and, I'm trying, I want to get through those books a little bit. And I know I'm going to lend, lend them to you as well. You know, and it's like, I haven't had much of a chance lately because if I do have free time, it's like, oh shit, you know, I need to like prep forbidden or prep demolition hammer, or, you know, prep heathen and stuff. And that's, that's all fun. Like you said, it's great, but it's like, shit, we need some time to actually, if we're going to do these wild episodes with like a guest, we should you know get our shit together a little bit. So I was like, as long as we have time to get our shit together before we record with them, I think that's a, a good thing, you know? Yeah, I want to go uninformed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we don't sound like, uh, like uh, I think you mentioned it, like Chris Farley in the skit. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Remember that? Uh, yeah. So like exploit it. Yeah, like they seem cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> GBH, man. Charge, they're cool, cool, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. You like that record? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's real cool. Um. And then in the meantime, Mark and I have talked about as kind of a placeholder, um, you know, we're, we, we're obviously going to put some like old patron shows out in the regular feed. Um, and so kind of look for that. And the feedback we've gotten on that was all really positive. Um, but the one thing that they talked about that Mark and I have kind of been working on is um, a couple more people commented after you and I talked last time, Mark, um, that the, you know, wanting a direct download feed is like, certainly ideal and so just so patrons know mark and i have actually kind of been looking into it um and we're seeing if we can run that off of our square space website um i think i can um right now the only issue i'm trying to figure out is if i can do if i can keep it hidden oh okay as a separate feed yeah so it's not publicly available yeah and i feel like there's a way I'm trying to think of how we do it, like how it happened with um, the wrestling. Patron they might thing. use one of those services. They must. I, I just I don't want to pay another 
you know, hundred dollars a year for. Yeah. Yeah. I some feel very like specific thing. What they did is maybe they sent an email and it's like, here's the link, click on this. And it, and it's like a subscription link. And then it basically like feeds into like, it takes you directly to like Apple music or something like that. And then like you're sub- subscribing to both the regular feed and the separate feed, but you only get the downloads of it. If you're a patron, you know, or whatever. It so, doesn't show up public or something. No, not at all. And so, um, yeah. So again, just so you patrons know, we're, we're really looking into that because um, I've also felt the same frustration, you know, where like I'll pause an episode because I'm, you know, going somewhere and then I'll go back and it doesn't like remember where I left off. And I mean, these patron episodes are like three and a half hours. And so you're just like, fuck. And then you're doing like the, the whole pan and scan kind of scroll bar and stuff. And, you know, it's not it's not conducive. And so I think like, um, you know, the more we do that, I think the more it will, you know, not only make the people currently as patrons happy but maybe be a little bit more more appealing to some other people as well um so just so you patrons know we're, we're working on that shit for you so um we just work smart around here yeah yeah progress we're we're two guys that have real real jobs that are also like doing this thing on this on the side and trying to do it well and so it's like shit uh we don't always have time to do all the, the technology things but yeah, I think there's there's a couple people that have sent me emails about stuff that I've been really bad about following up uh, more than just once because mm-hmm. I'm checking stuff out and then something else comes up and it's like this last couple of weeks has just been like putting fires out every day. Yeah, 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 and that's that's how I felt is like if we hit we were originally gonna maybe try and record this like Thursday and I mean if we had done it like it, I would have killed myself Wednesday trying to get notes together for it, but yeah. Shit. I'm really, I'm really glad that we, I got one more night to like recover. And even then I, I, I've been sleeping like shit lately. I don't know what it is. Like I've been surviving like four hours of sleep and drinking a lot of coffee. And I'm just like, I just need to get stress probably dude. Yeah. It's, it's not good. So I need to like get my body aligned this weekend and, and, and stuff. And I did it to myself because, um, you know, like I kind of, I don't know if people with, with the quarantine and, and, and COVID like, there's like a critical mass point that probably each person sort of has where they, they reach kind of a, a breaking point. And I feel like mine was right after Thanksgiving when um, I kind of got COVID exposed and was kind of self quarantining, which is why Mark and I have been doing a lot of these, you know, zoom style. And, you know, I was, we, we went full virtual for the very first time all year. And so the amount of workload like really increased. And then there were all these like external questions that were coming at me. Um, you know, with like the trips that I take in the summer, my tour person was like calling me and like, Hey, if we're going to travel in 2022, you need to have a parent meeting before Christmas. And I was like, ah, how do I get a hold of parents? Like, how do I do this? I'm stuck in my basement. And I, I just yeah. got to this point where I shut down a little bit. Like I did my lessons. I taught, I, I did what I did, but I didn't want to fucking grade. All I cared about was the only thing I could like mentally like give a shit about outside of teaching was like, doing podcasts with you, you know, like that was like my, my solace in, in like that kind of madness. And so I didn't grade for like the last three weeks going into Christmas. And then like Christmas break, I just kind of used that as like cleansing time. And then like the weekend we came back from Christmas break, like two weeks ago, I had this like fucking panic attack where I was like, Oh my God, I have like two months worth of grading to do. And like grades are due in like a week. And I was like, ah, and so it just became I, I did it to myself. Right. Like I just, you know, but it was like, I needed like a mental break because 
I was staring at a, a, a computer talking to kids through a computer from like, you know, 8 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. to like 3 o'clock. And then I would it's sit. It's not good for you, night. man. Well, it's not good. Exactly. It's not good for anybody. I did it all day yesterday. And I was like, how does anybody do this all day as for yeah. a job? It's fucking terrible. And then I yeah. would sit down at night and have to type up all the lesson plans for the next day. So they're already uploaded up there because there's some kids that are virtual virtual, which means like they don't have to show up to those like little virtual sessions. They just do it all on their own. So mm -hmm. you have to script out everything for them. And so like I would be staring at the screen like all night. And then like then I would like be like, well, if I'm going to grade, that means I have to grade on the computer because that's where they're submitting <laughs> their assignments. And I God. just like the thought of like doing that, like churn my stomach. So I just like shut it all down. I was like, I can't. I can't do this shit right now. So, and now we're back. So like we're, we're back in session. And so it's, it's easier because I can like face to face, I can interact with the kids in like a somewhat normal way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of cured my soul a bit, but now I'm like playing mass catch up and shit. And um, I'm trying to like, I want to start exercising. I got a yoga thing that uh, for Christmas, it was like my Christmas present to myself to like get myself like some kind of routine and like, like I said, I've been getting four hours of sleep and drinking lots of, like, I haven't done shit. You know what I mean? It's like, God it's damn. tough. Yeah. I'm completely out of my normal, like, you know, usually I would exercise three days a week, um, just doing weights and I've just had no motivation to do shit. Mm -hmm. It's real kind of, especially just all the, everybody's pissed off. Everybody's upset. They don't know what's, there's like all this uncertainty around almost everything. Yeah. Um, and I think people are just like, everybody's in a little bit of a de depressive state. Sure. Everybody's probably drinking too much, eating too much, uh, not exercising, not socializing. Um, their bodies are just kind of that would send, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, um, it's shitty out right now. It's there's no here in Michigan. There's no snow at all. Yeah. It's, it's been 30 like, degrees. It's just it's miserable. It's like gray and wet and cold and yeah the days that i we do there's like three or four days ago where it was actually sunny outside um but it's still like 30 degrees but you know i took the dog for a really long walk and i was making excuses just to do shit outside to be in the sun and i was like man i've not felt like this in a long time <laughs> yeah no, usually i'm perfectly content to you know to huddle inside and do stuff but mm -hmm. man this year i'm just like fuck no, it's, it's, it's smart. You, you know, forcing yourself to do that stuff, I think is really healthy. And that's, I got to set that routine up for myself. So I'm kind of in a, a weird spot with that, but I'm hoping this weekend tomorrow I'm going to sleep in, get caught up a little bit, like kind of just do some self care, you know? And like, yeah. my principle is always like, make sure you take care of yourself. And I want to be like, I get it. Like, yes, that's good advice. But like, there's also the reality that like, you know, like I was talking to her about like my lesson plans and how I have to type all that stuff up. And she goes, well, can't you just record your lectures that you give in like my rock history class? I said, I can, but when you're recording your lectures and then I play song clips, it's going to be like, <laughs> you know, like that's what they're going to hear on the other end. They're, they're going to hear like this, like I'm playing like a Beatles song or something like that. And it's just going to sound like shit. And like, there's nothing inspiring about that to a kid who's trying to get like excited about like music. Right. Like, yeah. So I'm like, there's no, you know, I would almost need like a, a professional like editor, right. To that mm -hmm. is like sitting there, like, you know, mixing my, my lectures for me, you know, and then like, you know, then like releasing those, you know, out to the, the public or whatever. So it so could I be done, but that's like yet another step. Exactly. You know, 
exactly. So I'm like, no, I'm just, I'll just script it. It's fine. And the good news is it's all fucking done. So like for future years, like it's all there. I don't ever have to do this again. All I have to do is like tweak a couple things every so often, but like, you know, it's not like I'm reinventing the wheel with how I teach rock and roll history every year. You know, it's pretty much the same general narrative and, and the same kind of pattern. And so that's like what I keep telling myself to get through all this is like, okay, all this hard work will pay off because it basically means like, I don't really have to write lesson plans for like my last like six or seven years of teaching ever again, you know? So <laughs> good. it's kind of nice, I guess, from that standpoint, but, uh, but yeah, you know, like I'll, I'll think about grading and then I'll be like, you know what? I want to, I'm just going to go read an X-Men comic and just calm myself down. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so then I'll be like, then it's a cliffhanger. So I'm like, well, I, I'll just read the next one. And then like, I'll read like three or four in a row. So that's been like a nice little like gift, I guess. So um, for people keeping track, I'm up at like, uh, I'm, I've, John Byrne is gone. Unfortunately, he is, he's left the book. I think he went on to maybe fantastic four and uh, I'm in like, you, the, what year is this? I've made it up to 81. So I'm in like issue 150, um, 151, somewhere around there. So, okay. Cause um, he went on, I think in, I think it was 80, fuck, 83 or 84. He did that Superman reboot. I think he did that in like 85, 86. It was after crisis. Was it that long? Yeah. Cause crisis on infinite earths was like 85, 86. And then I think that's when they rebooted like a bunch of titles at DC. And okay. I think, he did that, and maybe George Perez did the Wonder Woman comic, you know, uh, yeah. reboot or whatever. But yeah, so I think he goes on to Fantastic Four for a little bit uh, or something. He 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 left the he left X Men. So so yeah, I'm done with Days of Future Past and with um, Dark Phoenix Saga, and um, Cyclops has left the team. Sadly, I, I'm here's how you know you're old, Mark. I now, and I've, I, you and I have talked about this like in a personal way. I relate to Cyclops sometimes. I hated Cyclops when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, obviously I was a Wolverine fan because he's the, he's not the rule follower. He's the rebel, right? And now I have exactly. so much more respect for fucking Cyclops. I'm like, oh, Cyclops is making like all the really hard choices that no one else wants to make, and like, it's weird. It's like I identify with like the dad figure of the team now. I'm like, and I'm not even a dad, but it's just like shit. I don't know if that's from years of coaching or being in charge of things, but I'm like, yeah, maturity. I've been, I've been on the end of where Cyclops is, where everybody's just bitching at you, and you're like, no, just we have to fucking do this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, this but is like, what like now, who looking at those people like or those characters, I wouldn't want to be Wolverine. No, no. How fucking shitty is that, man? You got all this yeah. extra trauma and stuff, and yeah, you're, you're just, just like a berserker. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you're like <laughs> violent tendencies, you know. But again, when you're like a, a young kid, like Wolverine just seems like the fucking coolest, you know? Yeah. Well, actually, the character I think I've been most impressed with, and I wish I had read it. And, and you know, I don't know. Maybe when we were younger, I don't know if it was hard. Was it harder for you to identify with and, and or care about female characters in like comics and like cartoons when you were younger not really okay i don't but, know if it i mean was... there just there wasn't a ton there yeah i guess what i was gonna say is like the two the two characters i found myself most drawn to in this like current rereading is storm mm -hmm. she's really incredibly written and really fascinating and they've handled her with like incredible foresight for like the late seventies, early eighties, you know, like she's yeah. not, a, 
black exploitation type portrayal or anything. Granted, she's you know a different character being from Africa and, and all that kind of stuff, but I, it's impressive because sometimes like you'll read some of those like old comics and you kind of cringe at some of like you're like oh ugh, that doesn't. Or read like yeah, Luke Cage, Power Man, and it's like <laughs> Jewish yeah. dudes writing black language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Storm has been really cool, and Kitty Pride, man. I get why Kitty Pride, like, I guess I didn't realize how big of a, like, like, she's a 13-year-old when she joins. And so, like, she is, she's the comic public. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, it's like, they're portent into, like, the real X-Men world through the eyes of this, like, 13-year-old. Probably what Peter Parker was in the original run of, of Spider-Man, right? This young teenage kid going through all this shit. So, like, that's why people love Peter Parker so much in the 60s, I feel like. Well, yeah, he was a guy with same like you know same problems as you have but he has to fight doc ock on the weekend exactly and, and still kitty, do his like, homework <laughs> yeah and kitty exactly kitty's a 13 year old who's surrounded by adults so she wants to be like them because she feels part of that team but at the same time she's still 13 and she's still going through like those things and stuff so so anyways like that that's been kind of cool to like reflect on which characters i seem to you know identify with or or respect you know that maybe as a kid i don't know like i always liked shadow cat and i always liked storm but they were never my favorite characters and they seem to be like almost my favorite characters right now and that's that's kind of interesting well, it's know. good that the you, you can still enjoy the property but in a completely different way yeah have you gone back to any like old things like like what i'm doing not necessarily comics but just like i know you've gone back with like gi joes and things or i did with um things, yeah with the larry Hama comics okay what I go, was your take maybe every 10 years i reread those okay has it changed your perception of like which characters you liked when you were a kid reading the comic versus like now or have you had any of those kind of like weird experiences or uh, a little not there's so many characters in gi joe that's true <laughs> that yeah. you're still like uh you know the main the most interesting stuff is the is just you know the interplay between like uh snake eyes and scarlet and there's the whole hard master, soft master, ninja shit that's in the background. But that just the, how great the writing is kind of okay. for like uh, incidental characters is kind of insane. Yeah. Fuck, I forget Larry Hama wrote that. Because Larry Hama's the guy that, uh, was he writing for Hulk when uh, Wolverine was introduced, right? Either that or he's Wolverine. an editor, too. Okay. I think that Hama was writing Incredible Hulk because it's, I think it's, Incredible Hulk 181, I believe, is the first introduction of Wolverine um, when Hulk's up in, like, Canada fighting uh, Wendigo. And that's when, like, Wolverine shows up with that kind of really shitty version of Wolverine's costume, if you kind of remember. Like, it had, like, a weird face piece on it. it oh, like yeah. Bad, yeah. It looked like, a, like a bad, like, 50s yeah. Batman comic or face mask or something. So, yeah. But... Yeah, so like X Men's been a nice reprieve, you know, and I've chipped away at some some different movies and things like that, you know, when I need it, like kind of a mental break. Um, uh, oh, I finished. I saw, have you seen Ghost Story? No, with Fred is Astaire that with, with Ryan Gosling. No, no, uh, it's from eighty one. Oh, the Fred Astaire movie where the yeah. old people are telling the the stories. Yeah. Um, I know a lot about it, but I haven't ca- I haven't tracked a copy down. I've heard really amazing things about it's it, like fantastic and things like that. Yeah, it came out like that. The Changeling, and fuck, there's like three haunted house movies that came out within the, that year or two years mm-hmm. of that that are just still kind of like classic style. Yeah, but the Poltergeist yeah, eighty two, so it's kind of right around there. Yeah, yeah, uh, but a stairs like eighty in this movie. 
Yeah. And it's got really John cool. Houseman, uh, who mm-hmm. people know from like credit card commercials and stuff in the eighties. Uh, I think he Houseman was in the beginning like of a, like the fog. Wasn't he a, a Shakespearean kind of dude? Like he it did, sure like, seems like it. <laughs> I think he did some like, I've seen him in like old stuff. I, I feel like he kind of fits in the same mold as, um, who's the guy that directed night of the hunter. Oh, the um, only movie that he did. Yeah. Charles Lawton. Yeah. Yeah, I think Houseman and Charles Lawton and Lawrence Olivier, I think they kind of go back to like that old theater background a little bit. Oh, sure. This has uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. too. Oh, sweet. So it's, uh, but it's, it's super because it's got, um, it almost reminds me of like a Stephen King type, type vibe. How it's, you know, small town, um, this band of, you know, guys that are still together that have a secret. There's like flashbacks and lots of nudity, weirdly. Okay. (laughs) But the, and then it's, um, Dick Smith who did like the exorcist special effects. There's some unbelievable zombie effects in it. I, that's kind of what I've heard is that it actually like holds up really well from a practical effects kind of standpoint. Yeah. So. Everything about it holds up super well. Like it's, um, I would say that and Changeling are two of my favorite like ghost story movies. Changeling's great. I got, uh, my stepdad really into that. He, he seems to be like, I've kind of figured out his like horror movie kind of taste. He, um, he hates like teen stuff. So he hates slasher movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he's never, I think he legitimately, he is not a like gore guy. He actually wants to be scared and he doesn't find slasher movies or zombie movies to be scary. He just finds them to be violent, you know? Yeah. So, but he loves like ghost stories. So well, this is the one man. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, so you I got him a cheap on Blu-ray. Movie. Okay, I'll have to track that down. He's probably seen it, you know, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I got him in the Haunting of Hill House and that like unsettled him a bit, like in a cool way. He was like, yeah, that, that really fucked me up. I'm like, cool. All right, The good. series or the movie? The series, yeah. Yeah, the series uh, is real good. Yeah, I mean, even the movie is pretty entertaining too. Um, mm-hmm. I watched that, not the remake, but I watched the Vincent Price one recently. Uh, it, was, it was pretty entertaining. The, the remake's um, terrible. Yeah, I never saw it. I remember when we were in college when it came out, remember the advertisements and shit. Um, I got it for free with my first DVD player, I think. Oh, did you really? Uh, Yeah. I don't know what, I don't think I got anything free with my DVD player. I know that was like a thing for a while. I got that in like uh, Payback with Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. Which is actually a pretty good movie. Is Payback the one that's kind of a remake of Point Blank? Kind of? Yes. The Marvin movie? That's what I thought. Yeah. Not Um, anywhere near as good, but. No, no. What else was I going to say? Oh, I watched uh, the original House of Wax recently. So. I've been look, trying to find that. I really dig that movie. I um, I I always go through like Turner Classic Movies. Um, and I had it on my DVR from October because they show a lot of like old horror movies during, you know, Halloween month and stuff. And I just, I keep them on there. It's like, I don't always have two hours to sit down upstairs and just watch a movie. So I just kind of keep them on there for when I got time. And I think last Saturday, I just was like, you know what? I'll fucking watch House of Wax. And it was cool. The special yeah. effects were, I mean, you've seen it, right? Probably yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the the special effects are really like kind of unsettling on the face, you know, like it's like deformity. That's pretty like disturbing shit for that point, you know? Yeah. Uh, it has a vibe of uh, like hammer. Yeah. Like everything looks like it was done on a set. Yes. Um, really good, like atmospheric lighting and, you know, everything's obviously a set, but it's, I really dig that. But look. it's cool. Yeah. No, yeah. I dig that too. Um, and then let's see, what is the movie I watched? Oh, two nights ago. <laughs> you ever seen Night Shift? Isn't it like an anthology? 
No, that's that's um, that's like a Stephen King type thing. I know what you're talking about. This is the first Ron Howard movie, and um, it was something I picked up when I was visiting Chris in North Carolina. Is Henry it Winkler like, in it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the first Michael Keaton movie, and it's like Shelley Long. It's Ron Howard's first movie, but hmm. basically, like um, Henry Winkler, like plays against type. He's basically almost playing like a neurotic, like not cool character, like a Woody Allen type character. You know, I think and, I saw that years and years ago. Oh, I don't really remember much about it. Yeah, it's not like essential. It's just like kind of a fun, whatever kind of movie that I, I just sort of put on the other night. And because um, I had picked it up, used for like two bucks and was like, yeah, I should probably watch this. And it seemed like I could like also grade what was kind of happening a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ended up running like a prostitution ring out of like um, like a, a fucking morgue. Cause they're working the night shift oh, and, like, and they're running like a side hustle and Shelly, Shelly Long's like a prostitute and shit. It's like, it's a pretty wild movie. Um, fucking what's the dude who, that crazy actor that was in maniac. That's also like from Godfather and Godfather two. Um, uh, that he's the star of maniac, that crazy, like I can um, picture his face. Um, I have no idea what his name is though. Yeah. He's in that. He plays like a random role. And whenever he's in a movie, it's like, okay, that guy's in this movie. This, this is going to be kind of a wild movie. <laughs> you know, Clint Howard's obviously in it. Cause it's around. Um, yeah. Check that out. And then I watched the Chicago documentary on the band. Um, because not that I like newer Chicago, but I kind of got recently into like their first couple records, the, like when they're, like the 25 to to six and seven or, or whatever that song is. Dun, 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 yeah. dun. Um, because I was doing some reading and I, I had read a quote and I think, you know, people know this, that Hendrix famously said that he thought that the guitar player in Chicago was the only guy that was like truly better than him. And so I started <laughs> like to like look into some deep cuts and I was like, Holy shit. Like uh, Terry, Terry Koth, I think it was his name. And like, I got to ask Mike about him, uh, our old manager, because I bet like Mike has some kind of thoughts on it, but his shit is fucking like insane. Now you guys on a streaming service. Yeah, it was on prime. It's not a great documentary. I'll be honest. I kind of get why Chicago is the way they are because they're kind of fucking boring. (laughs) Like (laughs) like the dudes themselves, they don't really have any personality, but like, I just kind of wanted to know about them because you know, like you and I fucking grew up with like Peter Cetera era. And I guess that's like the anomaly era. And I didn't realize that that's when he like usurped the band in the eighties and like basically took them over and like turned them into like this safe ballad kind of band. But like, they were just like this kind of crazy. Like, like the similar, like when uh, like Peter Green got kicked out of, or just yeah, left. Peter Mac. Like yeah. It's, it's almost like Genesis after like, you know, Peter Gabriel leaves or like, yeah. yeah after Peter Green leaves Fleetwood Mac or something. And so like, I was just kind of like, I've kind of been into like the, the, the like early Chicago records just from a, you know, guitar standpoint, you know, I'm not like a huge horn guy in rock, but like, whatever, if the guitar stuff's cool, I can kind of get into it. And, um, Steven Wilson actually remastered all those early ones, I guess. Hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I can recommend like the first two late sixties Chicago records are, you know, they got some pretty fucking killer guitar shit. If you like that Hendrix, you know peter green type stuff um yeah my mom had a bunch of the peter satara era my mom loved that shit it was just oh exactly exactly you know every so often like like when they use (laughs) if you need me now in three kings 
Like, yeah. I love that scene because it's so fucking funny. They're just driving through the desert, awkward silence with that song playing or whatever. But <laughs> Didn't he but do like, one of the later Karate Kid songs? He did. For Karate Kid 2, he does the theme song. Yeah. Is it the I'm Your Knight Who Will Fight For Your Honor song? I will fight. For, yeah, whatever that song is. I used to yeah. think that was cool when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I but just I recently watched Karate Kid 2, and I was like, eh, you know, like... I can get where people would be into this song back then, but it's very much stuck in the eighties. But no, oh, of course, Peter Cetera is kind of a dick too. He he's like one of the only guys that declined. He has no part in that documentary. Hmm, so that says a lot. Like like he declined when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like he didn't show up. So like I'm just like, all right, fuck you, Peter Cetera. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Fuck you, Peter Cetera. So heathen. <laughs> heathen. That's our that's our gateway. That's our. Fuck you. All right. We're, oh, we're real done quick. One more movie. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, Amazon has had some great, or Prime has had some just great old schlock movies on there. Okay. As far as like recommendations. And I saw this Melanie Griffith movie from, I think it was the, the same year or the year before Working Girl called Cherry 2000. It's this post-apocalyptic, it's, it's like a 12-year-old wrote this thing. It's just absolutely ridiculous, but very enjoyable. Is the character in it like Cherry? Well, Cherry. The whole premise is this guy. It's the future, and yeah, uh, there's like you know the typical thing. There's the people that live out in the the wastelands, and then mm-hmm. there's the people that live within the cities. And the people in the cities have sex robots. And this guy's oh. sex robot that he loves, uh, <laughs> they're fucking on the floor, and the the dishwasher overflows and short circuits her. <laughs> So he goes into the wastelands to find a hunt, like a uh, tracker, which is Melanie Griffith, to go find uh, a new body that he can put her old program into. Oh my god! That's that's your premise, but there's like some unbelievable action in it. It's a it's a canon movie. Oh yeah, okay. So it's like tits, explosions, car chases, machine guns. So it's Sci-fi. like grind. It's like Grindhouse kind of ish you know but it's amazing <laughs> yeah no it's i mean so that's, fucking crazy. sounds entertaining yeah that's cool melly griffith was also in that um brian de palma movie where she body double where she's like naked that whole movie i think did you ever see that it came out around the same time as dressed to kill when like de palma was just doing these almost like borderline psychosocial or psychosexual like tna movies i think i saw it years and years ago it's it's not as like good as twenty years Hill, ago, but it's it's okay. You know, it's a De Palma movie from that era, so it's like at least like worth checking out. But yeah, I saw her in her first movie um, during my quarantine uh, watch. She's in that um, film noir movie with uh, Hackman, um, Night Moves, which I think oh, I, yeah. I, I recommend it to you. I don't know if you ever saw it, but um, I think it's on one of my lists of. Yeah, I've got it. Or maybe I lent it to you. You might have my DVD copy of it, actually. Um, but it's Arthur Penn that did um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And so it's like a weird, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say too much because I want you to kind of watch it. But it's it's definitely like um, it leaves you sort of uncertain of what you just saw and what's kind of happening. And it, it's kind of a cool, cool movie. So, But she's like really young in that. That's, yeah. So... Speaking of really young, I had I didn't finish it, but um, before we were recording this, I was kind of upstairs watching um, uh, Shampoo. You seen that mm-hmm. before? Yeah. Oh, uh, years like ago. Carrie Fisher's first movie. 
So kind of interesting. That's so. yeah, I think that's originally why I watched it when I was younger. Yeah, it's just yeah, and it's definitely it's it's a weird yeah, you know, it's like a sex romp comedy kind of '60s commentary kind of thing. You know, Warren Beatty and Goldie yeah. Hawn looking pretty good in that movie. Wow. So, so what was that? Uh, that's pre Star Wars. Yeah, it's uh, '75, so two years before. So okay, yeah. And then um, she, her, she had a weird. She was like in Fish Called Wanda. Uh-huh. Uh, the burbs and then oh, yeah, some yeah, like yeah. uh what was it it was like a delivery guy that she's having sex with or something with patrick dempsey oh yeah i forgot about you that <laughs> talk about yeah 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 yep. uh yeah it's not can't buy me love i know exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like always on tv yep yeah <clears throat> and then like she disappeared for a long time and i remember she showed up in like uh, Jay and Silent Bob as a nun, right? Who like? Oh, I don't even remember. Do you remember that? She, like, she's a hit. She, they're like hitchhiking, and she picks him up, and there's like a weird, like pubic hair joke about Carrie Fisher. I don't know. It's like a weird. It was funny in the moment, <laughs> but like trying to explain it now, I don't know. I haven't seen that movie in like a couple decades or whatever since it came out. But um, I think that was like her era where she wasn't acting as much, but she's doing um, like speaking engagements and she write, writing books and stuff. Yeah. Postcards from the Edge, isn't that her? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, anyways, I'll let you know how shampoo. I think it's it's on my list. It's on my big board to check off. So, gotta gotta do that. So, gotta gotta do it, man. So that's what that's what I'm gonna do after we're done recording, and probably a little bit tomorrow night is just kind of watch a few movies, feel good about myself, try and exercise, and, and wash your hair and watch shampoo. You better believe it, man. And uh, and think about heathen a little bit more. So yeah. Um, so, so as we kind of talk about this band for people that kind of don't know a lot about them, um, they're kind of formed by two guys, uh, Lee Altus. And Lee Altus is kind of interesting background. And I think this maybe brings like a unique flavor to the band in that he moved to the U.S. at the age of 15 from the Soviet Union in the early hmm. 80s. And I think, I don't know, I don't know, like he immediately fell in love with like the Bay area, like music scene that was sort of going on at the time. But he also was a, you brought up before, like a huge fan of like, not just American music, but I think coming from kind of, kind of Europe E, you know, Soviet union, I guess has some, some European flavor to it, even though it's kind of cut off at this point, he was a really big fan. And it's, it's his number one influence actually. in all of his songwriting is thin Lizzy. And I think you can like when you we're talking I can about the see twin, a little bit maybe the twin leads a little bit too. Yeah. I think like that informs some of maybe how he wanted to put together a band that had two really great guitar players like kind of feeding off each other, mm-hmm. um, and maybe even some of like the wanting like a like a good vocalist too, not just yeah. like somebody that was kind of screaming, but somebody that could kind of hit some good harmonies and, and things like that, and so. I think if you think about it for a moment, like it makes sense how like a band like Thin Lizzy shaped some of like the thrash dimensions of like what he wants to do, you know, a little. Um, And uh, he gets together with uh, Carl Sacco, the drummer, and they form uh, the early version of of Heathen. And then Carl Sacco actually goes on to drum at one point for Metal Church. So like that's kind of a weird kind of connection there because Metal Church is from Seattle. So I'm not really sure how he kind of got in the band and I don't know, I guess in this, it's, not too hard, it's only about a 12 hour drive. <laughs> no, no. And plus, right. Haven't we talked about in several episodes, how, like how in demand, like a good drummer is, you know, like yeah. 
Tony Scaglione being recruited for Slayer and, you know, like everyone wanted to like find good drummers, you know? So uh, if, if they know who you are, then boom, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then they later start to add, um, you get Doug Piercy that ends up sort of joining the band. Um, I think they, they formed, I want to say in like 82 or 83 is when he then sort of formed, but they didn't really start kind of releasing kind of demos and, and different things like that until like 85, 86. And um, Doug Piercy comes from Anvil Chorus and he comes in as the second guitarist and um, actually Anvil Chorus, not on Hypnotize, but on a later song we're going to hear called Prisoners of Fate. Um, the other Anvil Chorus guitar player was a guy named, um, shoot, I didn't write it down, but he does guest solos on two songs on um, on Victims. And I'm trying to find his name real quick. Damn. It's like, uh, what the hell is it? Shit. I'm looking in the credits here and it's not sort of listing it. I could just look on Metallion. Yeah. Anyways, he has like a weird name. Uh, it's like a German name. Um, but yeah, so like Anvil, Anvil Chorus kind of has like a weird kind of connection as does Blind, uh, Blind Illusion. Those kind of bands all sort of link up kind of together. Um, let me look here. What the hell is his name? Of deception. Let's see. Lineup. Guess. Theon Rasmussen. That's Ooh, who it is. A good so name. Theon Rasmussen um, and Doug Piercy were the um, two guitar players on on some of the early like Anvil chorus kind of stuff. So so there you go. Yeah. So it's weird. That's a kind of an interesting connection that kind of links up and stuff is that band. And then um, then they start to bring in. Um, oh, and by the way, here's something like else. Piercy, who plays the the leads on um, on the, most of the what we're going to be kind of listening to, at least the early um, heathen stuff, he now plays guitar with Blind Illusion. So <laughs> when we listen to that brand new Blind Illusion uh, song that we played, As I think the crow on part flies. four, yeah, that's he's playing the the guitar on that song nice. along with Mark. So like again, it's just like this weird incestuous like kind of keeping track of who all these guys are. And then they bring in David Godfrey and he goes by David Godfrey at first, but later adopts David White, but it's the same guy. And a lot of people think there were two vocalists in Heathen, but I guess what it was is that he was born David White. It was a stepdad's name. Stepdad's name. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and he came from Blind Illusion, not only as a singer from Blind Illusion, but he actually drummed on the early Blind Illusion shit in the late seventies. Yeah, I saw that. It was kind of, interesting so like so like I, I i listened to some interviews with him in more recent time about the new album and it talks about how even though he's just the vocalist for the band he actually can help them like write songs because he has like a real distinct musical background and has a background as a drummer so that's cool that's kind of cool you know so and then by the time we get to like the debut stuff you add um a uh, bass player uh, mike uh Yastrzemski, who they just call yaz um and nobody can say his name yeah, and he had been a guitar player for Griffin, and um, Griffin's one of those. But do you ever listen to Griffin like through Fenris? Fenris, I think I have promoter of them. I have, I, yeah, yeah. I kind of picked them up. Like I don't know. I think I think when Griffin got reissued, I think they got reissued by a label that used to like service me in college, and so I had got like a slimline promo of this like. Griffin flight of the Griffin and I put it on and it was like, it sounded like a 1984, like speed metal record. And so I was like, what? Like, 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. in, in, in 2001, I didn't know what to do with this. I didn't realize it was like a reissue. So I think I just kind of cast it aside and didn't really give a shit about it. And then years later, when like we discovered like Fenrez's like recommendations and playlists, I was like, oh, I fucking have a slim line of that. And yeah, so that guy becomes the bassist now for Heathen. So he was playing guitar for them and shit. And so it's just really, really strange who some of the people that kind of weaved kind of in and out of this band. I mean, shit, even like Paul Baloff was like with the band from Exodus, like singing with them when uh, David White temporarily left. There was like a little kind of tiff that they had in the band and he left the band for a little bit. He's done that several times. What's that? I think he's done that several times. Yeah. Has he? Okay. Okay. I mean, there's huge gaps that we're going to kind of talk about and I don't know if that's because of him or because of like several members just wanting to kind of walk away. Well, the dude from metal church was going to do vocals for him as well. Oh, David, uh, the other David fucks his name, uh, David Wayne. He was going to come in and do yes. vocals for him. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't, but he was only there for a few days before. Uh, okay. White came back. Yeah, and uh, and then even prior to like Piercy joining, because um, Piercy's on their debut record, which we're going to talk about in a, in a little bit, called "Breaking the Silence." There was even a guy named Jim Sanguinetti. Okay, now roll with me here. Who oh, then who left and made, did Mordred? Fucking started Mordred. So there's like. <laughs> So, so there's like all these weird, and by the way, he wrote, um, let me write it down. Uh, he wrote a song that we're going to be playing later. He wrote Heathen song. So he's oh, yeah. like, so he's like Dave Mustaine with like ride the lightning. You know what I mean? Like where mm-hmm. like his songs are showing up in like later years or something like that. And it's like, it's a damn so good it's, song. Yeah, it's a great song. And you go, Oh shit. Okay. Fuck man. So, so it's like weird. It's like this weird family tree of all these guys like blind illusion and anvil chorus and, and some of that kind of stuff. And so, so I thought it'd be kind of fun to like throw an anvil chorus song out to people because this is w- very much a band that we will never, ever do a show on. No. Um, they don't really have anything. Um, I was talking to Mark before we started recording, like he was like, well, what's their, have they put out like a, a discography or anything? I'm like, no, <laughs> They have they have a demo from '81, and then they put out one single, a seven inch, which is what we're going to hear in 1982. It's a 2009 record too. Yeah, and then that record's not very good. I didn't really listen to much of it. That's the only thing you find on, um, you know, Spotify and and stuff. But I remember when we were putting together the countdown to episode 200 stuff, and I was going through the very first pop off thrash book. I remember coming across some stuff about Anvil Chorus. And so like when I started doing research on Heathen, I was like, shit, man. Like I remember them talking about Anvil Chorus was like a big live band in the scene. Like they meant a lot to like a lot of the younger bands, kind of like Blind Illusion did. Um, and even Y&T to some extent, because Y&T was like the the band that made it from San Francisco in the metal scene, at least in the early 80s, you know? Yeah. And I happened to finally find something about them. And so I went back and it's in the uh, pop-off book, The Birth of Thrash. And, um, you know, it basically has like a little thing. It says Anvil Chorus are a rare local Bay Area band with actual product that had come out by 82. So the reason that people looked up to Anvil Chorus is because they actually had put out this single in 82 called Blondes in Black once again. Um, And there's a quote here from, from Kirk Hammett. And he says, Anvil Chorus, they were a completely insane band with a great drummer, a great keyboard player who was classically trained, and two really, really great guitar players, of course, one of which is going to join Heathen, who were a bit more musically mature than the average musicians that were around at that time. 
or at least I felt. And they formed a type of heavy metal that had progressive elements to it, almost artsy. And they had keyboards over some of the riffs, but they had some heavy riffs. And they had this one song called Bow to, Ch Bow to the Church, which was actually about metal church. <laughs> so it's like a, another weird and he laughs in the in the quote he says which was pretty amazing and they had some really great songs they were one of the most popular bay area bands at that one point or at one point and they actually put out a single called blondes and black for a bay area hard rock metal band to put out a single that was quite an accomplishment i remember thinking they actually put out the single and everybody was like wow it got played for maybe a couple weeks around the bay area college stations and and then they went they just kind of went somewhere else and moved on but they had great songs. Doug played insane harmonies all the time. And they had this one song called Guitar Harmony, which is based around Doug and things. And of course, Doug is going to bring Guitar Harmony to Heathen. And we're not playing that song, but it's track eight on Victims of Deception. So that was originally an Anvil Chorus song that they would play live back then. <laughs> so that's why I was like, I thought, you know what, like, why not talk about Anvil Chorus? Because in a weird way, they are kind of a piece of Heathen, and they're a band that probably doesn't get their due. And I think they meant a lot to a lot of these barrier, Bay Area bands, even though a lot of people kind of don't know about them. And so um, so you listen to the song. I mean, I, don't, I didn't write too many notes about it because there's not a lot to say, but what was kind of your vibe that you got from the song that we're about to hear? Let me find my notes. Blondes in Black. Why Mark's looking, I just said uh, it's kind of sleazy, kind of 1982, kind of Kiss Aerosmith riffs with, um, you know, a little bit of like kind of Van Halen sort of shredding kind of sensibilities on it. And I said that the solo really reminded me of Scorpions, uh, Sales of Chiron a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, I mean, there's like some like New York dolls isms and stuff too to it. It's just kind of of the time. There's, for sure. there's nothing like standout amazing about this track no. really. But it's just like I said, I think it meant something to like the, you know, I talk so often about like what it meant for me to see you and you and Chris put out Requiem in the record store and just being like, holy shit, there's people here that are doing something, you know? Yeah. And sometimes it makes you feel like part of a, that part of the community. Yeah, exactly. And so it, like, it was probably like, oh shit, we can make something of ourselves and we can put out records and like, and, and stuff like that. So um, so let's listen to this tune and, uh, and then kind of come back and, and kind of get into the, the first Heathen record. So this is the uh, Blondes in Black from 1982 from Anvil Chorus.
That was Blondes in Black from Anvil Chorus. So uh, some good stuff, you know, kind of a good little kind of spark plug there. And, um, you know, but pretty much now the band's pretty well set together. And it's going to be interesting for these guys. And, uh, you know, Sacred Reich, I feel like, is kind of almost in the same boat sometimes that, they, you know, they'll put out a record and then, like, the next record comes, like, you know, four years later and then 20 years later and then, you know, 10 years later. It's like yeah. these huge gaps for these guys and i don't i don't know that's like always interesting to me like how a band does stuff like that like um you know whether it is like band problems or that they just have like issues with their record companies i mean i know that breaking the silence this record we're about to talk about comes out on combat and i was listening to I think it was an interview with either David, the, the vocalist or Lee, and they were kind of talking about how they had management problems and that's why they like quit combat and then kind of signed with road racer and didn't, you know, didn't put out a record for four years because they were like dealing with some of that shit. And it's like, I feel like he then just kind of like is one of those bands that had bad luck maybe. And that's, yeah. I mean, look, even Exodus, like how long it took to get their first record out. Yeah, that's true. There's just yeah. like weird shit. Plus like, imagine how difficult this stuff would be if you didn't like without the internet. Like you're, oh, it's all mail and phone calls and you got to pay yep. for long distance. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird that you would think like, you would think almost because of, and again, Metallica wasn't like hotcakes right out the gate. I get that. But by 87, you'd think like bands from San Francisco that there was like a, a microscope on that particular scene because of the bands that were coming out of that, that there might be more you know, more people willing to like sign those bands or push them because they were kind of connected to that. But I don't know. I don't really know how the optics of thrash, like in terms of album sales were in the mid eighties, you know, maybe it's less than what I'm thinking. You know what I mean? They're probably so. fine, but I think most of those deals, um, it's, it wasn't a huge deal. To, well, it was a big deal to get your record pressed and put out by another label. But then like you had to like Metallica got in like Ozzy tours and, you know, Venom and like, everything worked in their favor i think it's yeah. incredibly rare they got seen by the right people and and stuff and yeah djs would play them even though they didn't have videos on mtv well and yeah. lars is in the band he's like the the fucking hype man yeah it's true he's like if promoter. you don't have a guy like that in your band and your manager's not doing what they're supposed to do then you're kind of fucked well and it seems like you know their their leader is lee but he's you know, he moved to the U.S. at 15 from the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I've heard him in interviews and he, he speaks pretty good English and, and stuff like that. He obviously made his way pretty OK, but he might be more shy. You know, he might be more reserved than your your average kind of band leader type guy. Yeah. And so I think I think David, by default, because he's the vocalist, I think he kind of became kind of a, a spokesman in a certain sense uh, as the vocalist and stuff. But I think, you know, you know, some bands try to I think they try to. Have, they want the music to speak for itself mm -hmm. and for these guys it does but sure. if you're not screaming it into the wind you know you've got to get get it under the right people's hands sure yeah and like i don't know how many shows they were playing um metallic was doing you know nationwide tours early on yeah you know on a car just like slayer you know coming here in 85 playing flint uh like yeah. you know ukrainian halls and shit yeah just touring their asses off yeah, yeah. That was the only way to get, you know, word of mouth, see people in tours, uh, then then get the records, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
So these guys now are a band fully formed and they put their debut out, uh, Breaking the Silence in 1987 for Combat. And um, yeah, I listened to all this last night, even though we're, we're just going to play a, a, a pair of tunes. It's the more I start to listen to it, the more I, I dig this record. And I think I'll probably I like pick it a it lot. Um, it's got like a real like um, Peace Cells kind of killing is my business kind of Megadeth kind of feel to it. Um, yeah, there's lots of no album in it. Yeah. Yep. Um, Especially the, like the, Priest, like in the rhythm guitars. Okay. I can hear that in the rhythm. Um, the leads remind me of Mustang, like older kind of Mustang type stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the uh, this, like the. Um, death by hanging and then open the grave are the two that we're yeah going to be yeah. discussing a little bit. Um, the I mean, open death the grave's got a lot of with... like merciful fate orchestration kind of stuff going on, like how yeah. it tells the story audibly through the through the song. Yeah, and a lot of like, especially in the midsection, you got a lot of like Ingve like neoclassical oh, yes. guitar <laughs> shit. You know, there's a lot of that. They sort of introduce that kind of part, but um, like death by hanging, that this opening riff we're going to hear here. I mean, it's straight up. It's like a straight new album riff. You know, like reminds me of like. Um, kind of reminds me of like "Evil Has No Boundaries." The like sort of the opening of that, or the opening of like "Am I Evil?" You know, it has that sort yeah. of like that kind of epic kind of feel. And in both those songs, I mean, obviously "Diamond Head" is you know one hundred percent new album, but like even "Evil Has No Boundaries," that "Show No Mercy" kind of had a lot of new album priestisms, kind of you know for a Slayer record, you know, for sure. Um, and this has that, um, like dry guitar production and wet drum production. That <laughs> it's kind of like, weird kill it's, all. like, yeah, that little bit of that. And it's like some of the early metal blade Slayer. Yeah. It, yeah. This isn't quite as like drenched in reverb, but it's just, sure. it sounds like somebody doesn't really know exactly how to capture what they're trying to do, but it's, yep. it's but it's charming. I think that's I think that's a good way of describing breaking the silence is like when you compare it to like victims of deception, like it's it do, maybe doesn't have like an identity as much, you know. It's a great like thrash record, but I think I could see a record like this kind of getting lost in a lot of the shuffle in like eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. Whereas to me, victims of deception seems so kind of above other records in a certain sense. You know, I mean, you kind of said it has like this perfect tone, this like perfect guitar crunch, like really good songwriting and, and breaking science has all those things too. I mean, you can hear it on open the grave, which I think open the grave to me is the reason I picked it out is because I think it like hints at where they're going to go with like longer songwriting in the future. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, um, I think they might have the longest songs out of anybody we've done. Yeah. Consistently long songs. Maybe when you talk about like the second and th oh, well, I guess it'd be the third and fourth dark angels. Like they had a lot of long, long songs too. Yeah. But that's maybe the only band I can think of that was doing a lot of that. I mean, Flotsam, like seven, eight, nine. <laughs> yeah. You know? Flotsam did too on that debut down Doomsday. Okay. But that was just in the middle. It was just like two songs back to back. They were both like eight or nine minutes long. And then I think everybody, everything else was like four or five. So. I mean, that's another reason they might not have made it in any kind of like even specialty radio show because it's yeah. too long. Yeah. I mean, the big song that they released for Breaking the Silence wasn't even an original. It was a sweet cover of Set Me Free, mm -hmm. and um, which is great. It's a great, sweet song. But, like, that's, you know, Quiet Riot pulled that off, and a few other bands have done that, like kind of getting their big break through, like, a cover. But it's not always the 
it's not the smartest way because then of course when people buy the record and then they hear fucking open the grave it's not a sweet cover and they're just like what <laughs> you know like yeah what is this shit you know so well, they, they did a, a rainbow cover on this album oh, as well that fits that fits better almost on victims of deception you know yeah. what i mean like it, it, because because there's like a do quality to his voice to begin with in terms of his like abilities yeah and then i don't know and again i love sweet i probably like sweet more than your your average person but um to me, it's like a weird thing because who are you appealing with a sweet cover as your first single? Like, are you going to bring in people that, you know, like to me, sweet is a band, like I associate more with like Motley Crue or like the glam stuff because they were sure. a glam, you know, and they're kind of proto metal. Sure. They were, had some cool riffs and shit, but to me, it's like if quiet riot covers sweet, that makes a lot more sense to me because when I buy that quiet riot, not only am I getting the sweet cover I want it, but I'm getting songs that are in the range of sweet. If I buy yeah. the silence because it's got this sweet cover that I saw on Headbangers Ball on MTV, and then I go home and I hear Death by Hanging and Open the Grave, is that your target audience? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, who I are you? If it's opposite, because anytime a band does like an off ball or off the wall cover, it always makes me go back and check the band out. Oh, you mean check out Sweet? Yeah, instead of like being pulled because of that. Sure. But and even like still, um, like the Slayer you, covering Priest, I didn't even know that was a Priest song. That's true. When I had that cassette tape, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know, know that until, you know, years later. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, but that's an established band. I guess what my question is, is like for a debut record, your opening single on MTV to be a sweet cover, I don't know, is it risky? Because like I said, who are you selling to? Because you're not... You're, are you hooking the right people into your band? Are you going to hook people who then when they get your release are kind of like put off by the fact that it's not a bunch of sweet type music? I don't know. Yeah. And that's, that seems like that's, a marketing that's, idea. Not a, That's what I was going to say. It's, it's almost idea. like bad marketing. And that's maybe why they didn't take off as much as some of those other bands, you know? Because yeah. I even like the sweet cover. I don't hate it. Um, we're not playing it. But again, it's like, you know. It's just a weird choice, I guess, you know, to really, I, it's not a weird choice that it exists on the record. I have no issues with that. It's just a weird choice that that was the video that was like pushed and stuff. So, but, uh, but yeah, so like death by hanging is kind of more kind of standard, you know, kind of thrash tune. And like Mark was saying on open the grave, a um, lot of the, the cool sort of classical stuff. And I, and maybe what you picked up on, and this, you mentioned merciful fate and I, I didn't really think about it, but I kind of said, it, you know, the, as the solos kind of come out in the second half of that song, I said the mood moves to sort of a melancholic, reflective uh, mood in the first half to like a rapid fire in the second half. Yeah. And like maybe that melancholic thing in the first half, maybe that's the Merciful Fate. That's thing. the Merciful Fate's always got this kind of like, you know, melancholic longing in their in their leads and stuff. There's always yeah. some kind of like, like deep sadness where it seems like like a deep, like gothic uh pomposity to some degree in a, in a very nice way yeah no no and i and i guess my my thought is this and this is kind of interesting to think about it just kind of came to me you know lars a lot of what made metallica kind of have like this extra dimension to them perhaps you could argue is that lars came from europe mm -hmm. and moved into that scene and think about lee I wonder like what music Lee was listening to in the Soviet Union. Again, I, I don't know, you know, like in terms of censorship and what stuff was like making it through, but it's almost like, you know, the stuff Lee, like was Lee 
like more apt to listen to like European metal than like his contemporaries in San Francisco because of where he comes from, that he was maybe drawn to like Ingve and drawn to more like neoclassical or merciful fate or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, because he's an outsider coming into America, he's almost like bringing like a different set of like thinking about music and, and European music tends to be more classically kind of you know, European metal tells tends to be a little bit more, you know, pomposity and, and, and technical and, and stuff like that. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, it's like the, it's kind of the root for heavy metal. Yeah. It's, you know, the classical style, like, cause like rock and roll is more, you know, blues based instead of metals, definitely more classical, more yeah. European. Again, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a weird thing. I mean, again, I knew he was a huge Thin Lizzy fan and they're, you know, they're Irish, but they had some mainstream American kind of presence by then too. But um, yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah. You know, something to think about, like maybe like that's the added weird ingredient to heathen that some of the other bands had, you know, or didn't have, excuse me. Um, I mean, Testament had it only because Alex kind of is so well-trained, right? He's like a little bit different than your average, like lead guitar player, you know, yeah. of that era for, for a thrash band, I guess, you know? Um, but I never remember any of his solos. I remember Return to Serenity. That's, that's, that's the one that like sticks out to me. Um, yeah, you're right. They're, they're sort of like, I, yeah, that's not why I listen to Testament, I guess. Yeah. You're, you're not wrong. It like there. adds like a layer of, you know, interest or something, but I, it's not like George Lynch. I remember his solos. True. But they're not yeah. like flurries of notes as much. They're kind of, I don't know. They're more, they're more angular. They're more of like a counterpoint to, to doc and songwriting. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's almost like you get the feeling, and this is true of a lot of those like kind of MTV eighties bands, you know, the hair metal or whatever you want to call it it's almost like when their solos began, like the whole song kind of stops and like the spotlights go on that, like that guitar. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think Lynch benefited from that because he could put his money where his mouth was right. Or his mm -hmm. mouth, was, you know, whatever. So he could step up, you know, Eddie Van Halen could step up. Randy Rhodes could step up. Not all the guys could, you know, CC, CC's a, a fine <laughs> guitar player, you know, but he never, he's just doing what he can do, you know? And, and yeah, he's a great rhythm player you know and stuff but um i don't know so yeah it's interesting I, that's a good kind of point about that and i think like lee and, and doug and what those guys are kind of doing with the guitars um not just on breaking the silence but certainly you know more so on victims you know they're bringing like a lot of outside ideas and stuff i mean even what like doug was doing in that last song we heard on anvis core or on the anvil chorus the fact that like you know sales of charon is like a tipping point you know the fact that he's like already kind of rooted in like teutonic metal you know when like yeah. a lot of bands maybe weren't i know kirk was like that's like kirk's favorite song of like all time is sales of sharon so and he's a big shanker guy yeah. so it seems like there were people in san francisco in those circles that were definitely you know you know obviously we know lars was way rooted in european metal and then shit but um well, i think open yeah. the graves got a lot of except yeah like if i close my eyes and listen to it i almost feel like udo's boy should pop in yeah, yeah, I could hear that too. I said it's like if you took like the main riffing kind of. I said it's like if you took Metallica, Overkill, and Violence into a blender. It just kind of <laughs> has like some of those kind of things going on, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and like I said, I think this is a real portent into um, kind of where we're going to be going after this, which is going back and, and really kind of breaking down victims of deception. So, 
So let's do it. Let's get into our pair of tunes from their debut record from 1987, Breaking the Silence. This is Death by Hanging and Open the Grave. And we'll have a little uh, special message from Heathen on our way out. So enjoy.
I'm Doug Pierce. I play guitar in Heathen. I'm Lee Altus, and I play guitar too. We're out in front of Ruthie's Inn. It's now Keisha's, but it used to be Ruthie's and Exodus, Slayer. A lot of these older bands started here, you know. And um, all the local bands used to play here. Big local scene here. Metallica played here, and it's uh, been a real legendary club all these years. Is it just like a bunch of idiots going as fast as they can? I mean, I've never played speed metal, really. I've just played heavy metal. You know, it's like that's what I think of melodic, cool ways of changing really fast rhythms and brutal riffs and stuff. It's all just metal, basically. That's all it is. <laughs> that's better. Not speed, not thrash, not pink, not brown. You know, just metal. Just metal, all in good. Real pink, real good, real loud, real brutal. Real hopelessly hard for your parents to control. Exodus was always, you know, my favorite band from around here. They'd break glasses on the stage and smash their fists yeah. into them. And People would stage dive and dive into the glass, and there was be, would be blood, you know, but it was on the fun, stage. You know, they just do it. Crazy. It was an unbelievable thing. This was back in '83, '84. You know, yeah. I remember this one night when Exodus played, and it was like really violent night, and this one guy, like Paul Bailoff, said, "I want to see a dead poser." <laughs> and a bunch of, you know, Exodus kids just ran out and found this guy with spandex and slashed his throat. That was Open the Grave and Death by Hanging. And uh, we got a nice little urban legend there about the, the story of Exodus from, from Heathen there. So uh, did they did they really kill a guy, Mark? Come on. What, what I, happened? I don't think so. Yeah. I think they just tore off his uh, trickster shirt or whatever it was and made an armband out of it. Boy, it's I hope some, it was Or they called them shirt. scalps back then. Yeah. Man, I, I wish I had a trickster shirt. <laughs> that would probably play well with where I teach because there's a lot of dirt bike people in Armada, I think. so. I'm know. sure there's one on eBay. Yeah, I, uh, I I used that term when I wrote the review for Trickster for History Heavy, uh, the History of Heavy Metal Countdown. I called it dirt bike metal, and some people got some glee out of that. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I said that around Chris, and Chris just started giggling uncontrollably. He's like, dirt bike metal? Like, I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> That's like a subgenre, <laughs> dirt bike metal. So, but um, yeah, I think they touch on some things that you know, like I, I remember just recently reading um, when I posted that Forbidden show, our part ten. Do you remember those rock and roll cards? I think they had them at that record store that we were at. Uh, yeah, like yeah, so like nineties. Um, yeah, and so like uh, I, there was a Forbidden one. And somebody posted like a screenshot of it recently. And so I like, I grabbed it. I was like, oh, this will be perfect when we, we release our forbidden episode. And on the back, there's like a quote from the guys and they're like, yeah, we don't really think of ourselves as thrash. We just like to play like heavy metal and, you know, blah, blah. And that seems to be kind of like a common trait is like 
don't put me in a box. Don't genreify me. We're just doing what we do kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, so I think they, that's just like, a, you know, we're obviously calling this the thrash extravaganza, but I think you recognize that the variety of all these bands that we've covered over these 13 episodes is kind of vast. You know what I mean? So, For sure. Um, so now we get to victims and, you know, where we started with hypnotize and now we're kind of back into the lion's den of, uh, you know, a really good chunk of this record. And, and as Mark was like alluding to like the next four songs that we're going to hear from victims of deception are seven minutes, 51 seconds, nine minutes, 26 seconds, seven minutes, eight seconds. And the shortest one, six minutes and 27 seconds. And, you know, I mean, the only thing I can think of around this era, well, maybe not around this era, cause it's three years later, but like, this is maybe where the injustice for all comparisons happen. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything on Injustice for All was fucking long, except Dyer's Eve, which I think was like five minutes long. Everything else is like six minutes on that record. And then a couple songs are eight minutes, nine minutes, you know. Yeah, I guess so, they did a, a one radio edit too. For one? Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, on MTV. I which is, that. they kind of take out like some of my favorite parts of the song. Yeah, some of the awesome parts of the solo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Kind of bums me out, so... Basically, what happens with this record, um, you know, it's four years later. They've moved to Road Racer. Um, kind of a cool cover. Pretty iconic in a weird way. Like, it, it's it's something, like, I looked past along, uh, like, when I would see it often. But the more I kind of study it, it kind of has, like, a nuclear assault type kind of feel to it. You know, or It something. looks more modern than 91. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's maybe a, a, good, a good way of putting it. Um, and in terms of, like, the band lineup stuff, um, they get... Um, Darren Minter shows up on drums. Um, the I can't remember who was drumming on the previous record. I'm sure it's somewhere in my my notes. Uh, maybe it's Carl Sacco at that point left. Um, I think he he may have drummed on Breaking the Silence, the original drummer guy. And then Yaz leaves as well. Their uh, their kind of bass player, and that's where enter Mark Biederman from Blind Illusion. So mm-hmm. pretty cool, you know and. Um, it's one of those things like where I remember like when I first was listening to victims of deception and, and kind of reading about how people, um, you know, would compare it to injustice for all. And like you pointed out, you know, Lars's drumming is even kind of similar to the drumming that, uh, Darren does on here. Yeah. The, uh, the backbeat stuff, the weird, yeah, chant, you know, like why would you put a snare beat there? But yeah, it works, yeah. <laughs> but it works. I remember kind of getting worried because the first few songs, you don't really hear much bass. And I was like, "Uh oh, did they did they go injustice for all? But as we're going to hear, not in this set of music, but the next set. Yeah, there's, there's we'll definitely a, hear some. There's a song where Mark finally gets to, to, to do some things. And you're like, OK, it's not completely injustice for all. So, so that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, this pair of tunes that we're about to kind of get into here. Um, you know, opiate for the masses and heathen song. Um, I mean, heathen song might be my favorite heathen song. To be fair, it, it's mm-hmm. close. Um, it changes. You know, there are moments where like I love hypnotize so much because yeah, I mean, just the the opening riff pattern and, and shit just really gets me into it. But I mean, opiate for the masses is like pure Metallica, palm mute, Kirk Hammett harmonies. You know, like it's. I don't There's know. some straight up lifts of beginnings of Hammett solos. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I just wrote, I said, this is where I kind of talked about the, the tech prog thing. I said, this record gets lumped into the, the tech 
prog thrash category, but I'd argue that outside of long songs and great musicianships, as more in common with Metallica, Testament, or Violence than say like Watchtower. And yeah. I said, not unlike you know Justice for All or Rust in Peace, um, it has some neoclassical stuff that shows up around the the four fifty mark here. The Yingbei solos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before it melds, I said into a pure master of puppets, palm muting glory. It's I mean it's almost some of the riffs from the title track that are like kind of happening in the song, you know, it's damn fucking close. I wrote, um, yeah, that there's some of the Metallica things are so there's, it's really similar, but it's almost like, like B sides or like unused tracks, unused mm-hmm. riffs that I can imagine these riffs being on like a tape in James's car. Yep. Like they're so fucking close, but they do something completely different, which works. And there's a really good gang vocal thing where they do uh-huh. the, you know, power, mercy, greed. Yep. And that's maybe where I kind of detect like the Exodus violence kind of thing that you, you really yeah. grab onto, you know? But I did say like, you know, I said um, the the thing that really makes these guys, and it took me a few lessons. I think I told you when, when I, when we were first pitching this and I said, Hey, heathens won. I said, the first few times you maybe listen to victims, you're just going to think it's kind of like Metallica clone or something. But I, I think what you get is, the solos in this song serve as such a really awesome counterpoint to the sort of standard kind of San Francisco kind of riffing pattern that Testament and Metallica and those bands kind of do um, that it, it, it works. I think if it weren't for the fact that the two guys are working their ass off with these solos to like kind of do things that Metallica wasn't doing, I think it would, you could easily kind of say, eh, this is just like retread Metallica, but there's enough things in a song like this that, I don't know. It works. I don't, for whatever it is, it just like the, the formula kind of works. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. If it's like you said, B sides and Metallica, but does it bother you? I guess. Would be no, I, I think it sounds great. I, I don't think I've ever heard a band that sounds so similar that like tone wise, mm-hmm. um, that sound like, sound like Metallica, but it doesn't come across as like, uh, it really doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm like excited by it. Yeah. Cause it just and sounds know- so good. And I was, and the part of that I was kind of geeked about from your perspective is when we did, um, and I probably our non patrons will be hearing this episode soon because um, we did that kind of patron episode where we talked about our favorite Metallica records. And you love Injustice, and and you know, oh, yeah, I love it too. But that's like for you, and that's like not the most common record that people pull out. Most people usually pull out Ride or maybe Masters or whatever. But um, yeah. And so I was kind of like geek because I was like, oh man, I because I already knew this record was like really injustice for all worship. I'm like, I, I wonder if Mark's gonna really fucking love this record because of how much he digs injustice for all, you know. So um, that's cool. I'm glad that you don't, you know, didn't see it as like too derivative or something like that. But no, not at all. But I mean, at the end of that song, I, I wrote the E string gets abused at the end of that song. I said, you know. <laughs> Like, I mean, it, it, they're really working that out, that palm mute E string kind of Metallica kind of thing, but it, but it's, it's all good. So, and then we get to Heathen song, which is the song I alluded to in the first talk set that's partially written by Jane, uh, Jim Sanguinetti from, from Mordred fame, um, you know, and this one vocally, I think maybe this is why I dig Heathen song so much, because to me, David really kind of taps into his inner, like uh, Bruce Dickinson, Ronnie James Dio a lot. And he kind of finds like these almost like, and I use the term power metal almost to mean like early eighties kind of stuff. 
early mm-hmm. 80s kind of power metal speed metal but it's got like that kind of anthemic quality um to, to some of that early 80s kind of stuff in terms of the vocal hooks and, and stuff like that and so it almost makes sense why they would do they would follow this up on the record with kill the king from you know from rainbow because it's yeah, like works. these songs kind of fit together in a weird way but Am I wrong in hearing some kind of Bruce Dickinsonisms a little bit more in a no, song? I've got, like this? I put that too. I put a little bit of Bruce in the in the delivery, not like in range, really. No, but like I in agree. phrasing. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what it is. The phrasing, okay. Because it's like you're right. I'm not hearing him hit like the crazy Dickinson like notes, but something reminded me about that. And yeah. again, this is my little hint for for our next set. It's not the only time I was reminded of Bruce um, and not, not just from a vocal standpoint. And I'll just, I'll leave that as like a little, a little dot, dot, dot. All right. So that's something that's going to kind of come back a little bit. And I'm kind of curious if you pick up on it when we get to fear, fear of the unknown and, and prisoners of fate, which we'll talk about <clears throat> the next set. But, um, you know, it's, it's got the anthemic quality, you know, you got the, the, the Exodus riff that sort of lays in, um you can start to hear mark's bass a little bit more in this song all right um the vibe i get all right is especially from like about the 430 mark forward in in uh heathen song it's a long song it's nine and a half minutes long yeah this is where i hear like chemical wedding bruce dickinson like sound like the kind you know how like I i can see that like like the combination of Bruce and what he's doing with the vocal phrasing on that record combined with like what Ramirez is doing with like those really inventive, but still like really catchy guitar riffing, mm-hmm. you know, like Accident of Birth and like Chemical Wedding are two of like the catchiest metal records I've ever heard where like, I just want to sing along with everything and yeah. like, but yet it's like still kind of dark and emotive in ways that Maiden always wasn't sometimes, you know? And so I don't think Maiden's ever that maybe like one song, but they, the albums didn't feel like, I don't know everything about that. When I first heard uh, accident at birth. Yeah. I was just, uh, I, I thought the cover was stupid. Now I'd like it. Um, but I was so, so like, I didn't think Bruce could do anything different outside of Maiden. And mm-hmm. when he did, when Maiden was probably like their, their least influential or their yeah. least uh, putting out their worst output in most people's eyes. Um, he put out something that was pretty, pretty incredible. And it was like yeah. modern sounding, but yet still stuck to his roots and stuck to his strengths. Yeah. I mean, you hear like the chorus and chemical wedding, or you hear the chorus and like, um, oh boy, now I gotta, I don't have trying to think of the song. It's near the, it's another long song on um, chemical wedding that just has these incredible, like sort of vocal hooks and um, I'll find it just picked it up here ah um book of thale oh yeah um, yeah right like though that song like i get like a book of thale chemical wedding feel from like especially the second half of 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 heathen song you know i think the what i'm hearing in both of those um is that they like with the the Bruce Dickinson solo stuff, it's it's all drop D usually for the for the guitars and okay. those Roy Z. Yep. yep. Um, so that adds like a, a certain it kind of compresses the guitars down a little bit, and these guitars are compressed in a in a good way where it pushes it pushes the guitars down so they're still heavy as fuck and low, like yeah. low rumbling. But then the vocals just soar over the top of that in like yes. a way that you don't hear very often. 
Yep. Everything's yeah. like separated and like, you know, everything you can hear everything in a justice for all, except for the bass. Mm-hmm. Everything's like kind of on its own frequency and doesn't, there's like some air in there. And I'd really like that, that kind of, uh, with how heathen does that, especially in the yeah. song. No, that's, that's really well put. And like, I hadn't thought of that, but when I think of like chemical wedding, you know, you think of like Bruce is almost like, he's like separate from the guitars, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. because you're right. That drop down kind of guitar. Whereas in maiden, he like melds in like, everything's like, you know what I mean? It's like kind of the way it's designed. It's, it's kind of all melting together sometimes, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. And one thing I wrote, as I said, has any like metal thrash record started this stacked? I mean, like these three songs, you know, I mean, you're getting like almost a half hour of music and three songs. And it's just like, <laughs> they're like working you through like a lot of like almost every outside of like maybe Slayer Exodus kind of violent kind of that part of thrash. It's like really working you through like all these different movements. I mean, you know, Merciful Fate, like all these kind of different things that are kind of going on from Hypnotize, Opia the Masses and into Heathen Song. And it's just like, I think Rust in Peace does does a pretty good yeah. job of that too. There you go. Holy Wars, Hangar 18, Tornado. Yeah, yeah. you probably right. That's that's comparable. Yep. There you go. So that's why I wrote it down with question marks because I I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> and then at the end of this song, I just said like the guitar solos from the seven minute mark on. I said they're kind of in for me. They're in like best ever thrash like Hall of Fame kind of territory in terms of two guys just kind of playing off each other. Uh, each yeah. other. And then it kind of ends the way it began with this kind of cool, like acoustic out, outro, just like the song kind of begins with an acoustic intro. And it kind of reminds me of, um, I know you're not that familiar with these guys, but Crimson Glory, which is a kind of a cool kind of prog thrash kind of band from the like, 80s. Kind Proto of like power a, metal or something. Yeah, they're kind of contemporaries like Queensryche and stuff, but they're better than you probably think they are, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I always thought the cover looked dumb. Yeah. So that like, I did turned me off for a long time. I, I sold it to Chris because of that reason and then <laughs> regretted that immediately years later when I started like trying to track down like gems. I was like, fuck, why'd I sell that to Chris? So I had to pay some money to get it back. But uh Yeah, this song kind of does for this band what Cemetery Gates did for Pantera. Yeah. How it, it like sums up their entire like toolbox of what they can do in one yeah. song. Every every skill is on dis- display with this song. I agree. And I wrote, I said, this might be one of my favorite thrash songs ever. It's a good one. I mean, it's kind of like when, you know, you blew my mind when you told me like that Sacred Reich might be in your like top five thrash records. I was like kind of taking it back. And this might be like, for me, this is like my hot take with like this song. I I don't know if I'd put victims in my top five like thrash records, but like in terms of songs, this Mm -hmm. gives me everything I want in a threat in in like a song, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I tend to lean more towards like maybe longer, more complicated songs probably than you do. But like, this is, this is like, this tickles that, like the way gang vocals tickle, you know, your little thrash, this, this gets, you know, everything's going on, you know. And this it's, is the kind of technicality flashy. that I like. If exactly. this is, if somebody calls this technical, then I like it. Then you're into it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I agree. I agree. And again, you're a fan of technical because you like Injustice and that's like the yeah. most proggy metallica record you know so or like the first like your two gore guts records or something you know like yeah there's lots going on but it's it's not really i don't know if it's progressive or not it's got some technical qualities to it but yeah it's sure. just a, it's just time changes lots sure. of riffs yep yep absolutely so 
So, all right, let's get into it. I think uh, for people, maybe our patrons that don't know this record, you're in for a nice little treat here with this pair of songs. So, uh, hell, it's fucking almost 18 minutes of music with two songs. So, it's, <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's a normal set of music for us. So, here's uh, Opie of the Masses and Heathen Song. <laughs> 